2: Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening and thank you for your company and thank you for being with us on ADH TV and tell all your friends and families everything is here where you are now watching tonight's program and all previous programs and editorials. And of course, everything is on the website, adh.tv, and you can watch it when it suits you. We try here to be a beacon of common sense and we'll continue the charge tonight. I'll shortly have something to say about the crisis being ignored by the Albanese government, foot and mouth disease. I'll also talk to Daniel Wilde from the Institute of Public Affairs with an exclusive poll. The Australian public are not in favour of the demonisation of coal. I'll also have something to say on last night's magnificent win by Queensland in the state of origin. Yes, and Nick Kyrgios and the big rugby match at the Sydney Cricket Ground on Saturday, Australia v England. The latest also on Sri Lanka. And I'll talk to Lord Geoffrey Archer, formerly Deputy Chairman of the Conservative Party in Britain. We've been friends for years, so I guess he'll have another shot at me, as he always (laughs) does, but I've got plenty to fire back. And we'll get an update on the Conservative Party leadership. The, this morning, our time, two of the final eight were eliminated. My final editorial for the week will highlight the fact that the energy crisis worsens and the Albanese government is not speaking for the majority of Australians. All that and a little bit more coming up, including my view that the government's absence overseas is a slap in the face to Australians confronting crises every day. Don't forget, we're also interested in your views as well. Email me, alanjones at adh.tv, alanjones at adh.tv.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system.
2: Look, I'm not an alarmist, but I am a realist. The federal election was on May 21, eight weeks ago on Saturday. I have not been critical of the Prime Minister or Penny Wong traveling the world. A new Prime Minister must seek to build bridges face-to-face with other like-minded leaders. Penny Wong, the Foreign Minister, understanding the rise of China, has very sensibly sought to deal with it in Australia's interests. But that's as far as it goes. As of today, we have too many of the top rung of the new government out of the country, including the Prime Minister and the Deputy Prime Minister. Yet we are confronted with a major crisis which politicians and the media continue to ignore, the imminent threat of foot and mouth disease. Last night, we witnessed a magnificent victory by Queensland over New South Wales in the state of origin rugby league decider. Why am I saying this? Well, apart from the fact that there's barely a mention in Australian newspapers today of the foot and mouth disease crisis, what we do learn is an obscure story that Nathan Cleary will be heading off today to Bali to recharge his batteries, so we're told, before resuming the assault on the premiership by his defending premiers, Penrith. The coach, Cleary's father, has given state of origin players a week off, and we're told they're going to blow off steam in Bali. Has someone told these people that they could be carrying home a disease time bomb in their luggage? This is a disease that has now reached Bali, and the Albanese government has shown no evidence that it understands the crisis. The first case of foot and mouth disease in Bali was detected late last month. But there are reports that more than 300,000 animals across Indonesia have been affected. The disease affects cloven-hoofed animals, that is, those with divided hoofs. So, for example, it doesn't affect horses, but it does infect human beings. Sorry, it doesn't infect human beings, but the disease spreads rapidly amongst livestock, either as an airborne disease through contaminated food or through faeces or even clothing. Now, I spoke to Barnaby Joyce about this last night on the program to try to raise the profile of this crisis. I highlighted the outbreak in Britain in 2001, which forced the destruction of more than six million pigs, cows and sheep at a cost then of more than eight billion pounds. But our agricultural industry is much bigger than that of the UK. Our beef industry alone is worth 20 billion a year. Let me say this again, if you talk to farmers in the UK today, as I have, all these years later, 21 years on, they can never forget the burning pits of animals being destroyed, the stench across the landscape, the immense distress that was caused and the ongoing pall over the entire farming industry. If it strikes here, pigs, cattle and sheep would have to be destroyed. But this country is rife with feral pigs, feral goats, feral deer, It would be unstoppable, because the virus is highly infectious and spreads rapidly between livestock, and it can survive on objects like vehicle tyres, livestock trucks, equipment and clothing. In other words, the Penrith footballers could easily pick up the virus, pack their clothes to return home, and let the virus loose. When coronavirus struck around the world, Scott Morrison was criticised, but he was right, in not allowing Australians to return home for a certain period because obviously they could be carriers of the virus. To those who know nothing about farming, make no mistake, this will impact everybody. All Australians eat red meat, drink milk, eat pork. The prices of these commodities will escalate. The livestock industry here and the $27 billion livestock export trade could be shut down for months, even years. This is a terrible disease infecting farm species such as pigs and cattle and sheep, but also feral species, camels, pigs, goats, deer. Its impact on these animals, I'm sorry to tell you, is hideous. The virus causes fever, lameness and lesions on the tongue, feet, snout and teats. But when it was suggested to the Agriculture Minister Murray Watt that everyone returning from Bali and there are 103 flights each week from Australia to Bali, 1.3 million Australians visited Bali in 2019. All these people come home. When it's suggested that Australians returning from Bali should be quarantined, the Agriculture Minister Murray Watt says, quote, to do that for every single passenger would be a massive resourcing requirement, unquote. Murray Watt, what the hell are you talking about? It is a necessity. All that is happening now is, quote unquote, discussions are taking place between the federal government and the states and returning Australians are pouring back into the country. This should not be allowed. The impact of this disease in Australia would be of biblical proportions. I am receiving emails and texts today from desperate farmers who know it takes only one case and once it gets in, the farmers are finished. And they are pleading with me, quote, this will destroy everything we've worked for, unquote. You know, all we get today is that the federal government is considering an aid package, lending technical expertise and personnel support. What the hell does that mean? Clearly, there's not a farmer amongst them in Canberra, and they don't understand the magnitude of this crisis. Asking holidaymakers to fill out a declaration form, in other words, tell us the truth, are you kidding? And that's all? Now, I know it is difficult to contemplate, but two questions that need to be asked and answered immediately are these. One, should Australians wanting to return from Bali be allowed back in the country? Two, should Australians wanting to go to Bali be told they can't? Now, I know it sounds draconian, but the potential devastation of this disease is beyond straightforward contemplation. Look, I will have something to say shortly about a recurring theme in many public utterances this week by Australian and international luminaries at an energy forum in Sydney. We need to continue to remember that 67.2% of the Australian voting public did not vote for the Labor Party, but they're making pronouncements on energy policy as if they were endowed with biblical truth. Yet poll after poll reveals that they're out of step with mainstream Australia. Daniel Wilde, the Deputy Executive Director at the Institute of Public Affairs, will join me in just a moment because the Institute has conducted an authoritative poll of 1,000 Australians. Now, data for this poll was collected by the marketing research firm Donata. They are the world's largest first party data company with a global reach of nearly 70 million consumers and business professionals. So, it's pretty credible. And 1,000 Australians were asked simply, quote, should Australia build new coal-fired power stations to ensure families have reliable and affordable electricity all year round? Well, let's get an answer. And Daniel joins me. Daniel, thank you again for being with us. Uh, politicians might demonise coal as an energy source, but not the electorate.
1: No, that's right, Alan. Lovely to be with you again. And the results of that poll were 55% of Australians agreed that we should be building new coal-fired power stations to have reliable and affordable uh, energy all year round. And that's a very significant result because don't forget, over many, many years, practically every single major institution of our society uh, has been demonising coal, whether it's the media, whether it's big business, whether it's the banks, even the Minerals Council of Australia and the other industry groups that are notionally supposed to be in favour of coal and in favour of the resources sector have been demonising the very valuable uh, resource for many years, but Australians are seeing through this. What we know is that real Australians understand that you can't have a 21st century economy and society like Australia's without having 24-7 baseload power, which you can only get from coal. Now, what we know is under the policy of net zero emissions, at least 20% of Australia's electricity supply will be taken off the grid as six more coal-fired power stations uh, will close down, such as Iraring in the Hunter Valley. Uh, but Australians do not want this. This is a very clear signal that they want more coal-fired power stations and not to proceed with the policy of net zero which yes. is taking yes. coal off.
2: And of course uh, the part of the demonisation of coal-fired power is the fact that, oh well the plants have all broken down. Well of course if you've got an old car it will break down. But why would anyone invest in a new brand new coal-fired power station when the bias is always towards renewables and this demonisation goes on. But e- around the world there are 345 high-efficiency, low-emission, coal-fired power stations being built, many of them using our coal. Daniel, if you take the results by gender, these are very interesting. 54% of males agreed, only 26% totally disagreed. There is a proportion, 20% neither agreed or disagreed, but females, 55% totally agreed, only 22% disagreed. And 23% neither agreed nor disagreed. The age group distribution is interesting, isn't it? There's no evidence there, is there, Daniel, of the demonization of coal. They've they haven't swallowed all this
1: propaganda. What about the 18 to 24s? Well, you're right, Alan. The 18 to 24s, 49% said that they agree that we should have more coal, which is almost double those who who oppose having more coal-fired power stations. And I think this is really significant. Don't forget, this is a cohort of Australians that have gone through school and many of whom are currently at university. They've been subject to uh, this, what can only be fairly described as propaganda as it relates to coal, as it relates to uh, climate change. And one in two of them can still see through it and they can still understand the critical importance of uh, coal-fired power. And this should give us all hope. What it shows is that our message is getting out there. Um, And it's important to remember that the young, the next generation is not lost. They are open to our message and they understand the importance of of coal-fired power. So the key point I'd make, Alan, quite simply, is support for new coal-fired power stations is widespread across the community. That's right. Real Australians can see through the inner-city woke media.
2: Absolutely. Now, you take the 25 to 54 age group, 62%. Totally agree. Only 17% disagree. That's staggering figures. I mean, it means that the Albanese government, with its 32.8% at the polls, is completely out of step
1: with mainstream Australia. It is out of step, Alan. And this gets to a really important point, which is so much of public policy discussion is being driven by a small group of inner-city elite who do not represent the views, values and aspirations of mainstream Australians in the suburbs and the regions of our nation, whether it's on the issue of climate change, of net zero, of government's response to uh, COVID, the voice to parliament, they represent only a minority of opinion, yet because they commandeer uh, the commanding heights of our economy, our society, the main governing institutions, they're able to relentlessly push uh, this false notion that coal is bad for the environment Mm. or that coal is bad uh, for the climate. But one thing that they will never explain, Alan, this is one thing that they will never have an answer to, which is why does it matter if a tonne of coal is burned in Australia or burned overseas? It makes no difference to the environment or the climate whatsoever. Absolutely. But, of course, the
2: Teals would have you believe that, well, they want it to be 60%, mm. not 43 or 60 But I've made the point this week, uh, Daniel, not one of the Teal candidates won a primary vote, not one of them. It's only the preferential voting system that's put them in the parliament. So the notion that they command this extraordinary support is a complete furphy. Just given all the propaganda though, these are extraordinary figures. Now 57% of New South Wales respondents totally agree. Only 21% disagree. 67% of Queensland respondents totally agree. Only 20% disagree. South Australia, 50% totally agree. Only 24% disagree. There are percentages in each state, which basically, you know, a lot of them don't have an opinion, but Tasmania, 55% totally agree, 40% disagree, only 5% haven't made up their mind. Victoria, 52% totally agree, 23% disagree. Just go to WA, Daniel. What do you make of those figures? They're interesting. The home of mining and resources, where only
1: 36% agree, but 39% disagree. What do you make of that? Well, there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that WA is more of a gas than a coal state. A lot of their electricity comes from a gas and they're also heavily reliant on iron ore as well. And don't forget, they're not on the national energy market. So the national energy market goes through Queensland, New South Wales, South Australia, Victoria and uh, Tasmania. Western Australia has its own system. So they have a unique situation which helps explain those results. But as you identify every other state, Uh, A majority of of residents of those states believe we should have more coal-fired power stations. And the reason for that is they know what's coming. They know that the price hikes that we've already seen, the supply crisis that we are experiencing is just the beginning of Australia's great energy crisis. They go home and they see their bills going up. They're concerned about what is happening. They know that their electricity price is going up. They know that the cost of operating a small business is going up. They feel this in their bones and that's why they know that we need more coal on the grid so we have more reliable and affordable electricity coming into homes and businesses.
2: Brilliant, absolutely. Just have a metropolitan Australians, for example, they're not represented by the teals. 51% agree and 25% disagree. Metropolitan, regional, 63% agree. We need more coal-fired power stations. Only 21% disagree. Daniel, surely this shows that the persistent, repetitive, and to me anyway, the boring demonisation of
1: coal has limited foundation within the electorate. It certainly does have limited foundation. And that's because, you know, mainstream Australians understand that you can only have an economy and society like we have when you have reliable baseload power. And there's another facet to this. Australians know what is happening overseas. They've seen the situation in Eastern Europe. They've seen the challenges that Germany has with their reliance on foreign electricity supplies with Russian gas, and they don't want Australia to be in the same situation. Now, the good news is, Australia does not have to become the Germany of the Asia Pacific when it becomes uh, when it comes to energy resources, because we have so much of this at home. We have over 2,000 years of coal beneath our feet. We have an abundance of gas, an abundance of oil. We have a third of the world's uranium supplies. So we don't need to be in the position That Eastern Europe is, but it is short-sighted politicians cheered on by the woke media and bureaucrats that are forcing this energy crisis on mainstream Australians. It's not only a risk to our economy, it's Mm. a risk to our national security. Absolutely, you can't have national security if you don't have economic
2: strength. Just look at the salaries now amongst people on salaries of $100,000 plus, $100,000 plus. Sixty-nine percent of those agree Australia should build new coal-fired power stations to ensure families have reliable and affordable electricity all year round. On 100,000 and over, only 12% disagreed. On 45,000 to 99,999, 58% agree, only 24% disagree. And even on less than 45,000, 51% totally agree and only 27% disagree. Just, Daniel, what does this mean? For the Albanese government, I mean, there was an energy forum in Sydney this week. They're all talking this rubbish and coal's out the door. What's it mean for the Albanese government talking about transitioning out of coal? They're obsessed with it. to renewables. And plenty of people in the coalition are saying the same thing. Yet we've got the potential to have high efficiency, low emission coal-fired power stations using our plentiful supply of coal, guaranteeing available, reliable and
1: affordable electricity to Australians and Australian businesses. And we're being denied that. We are, and you've put your finger on something very significant. Yes, there are a number of Liberals in in the coalition who are saying we need more coal. But don't forget, you've got people like Simon Birmingham out there uh, saying that the coalition needs to go harder and faster on cutting its emissions. Um, So the key point is that the coalition uh, need to revisit their climate policy. It was a grave mistake of, of Scott Morrison to go to Glasgow last year at the climate conference to announce that he was adopting Labor's policy of Mm. net zero emissions Mm. by 2050. What this poll demonstrates, without a shadow of a doubt, is that there is significant support in the community for abandoning net zero, uh, for promoting coal-fired power, and ensuring that we have reliability and affordability at the heart of our energy policy, not cutting emissions. Don't forget, these results are in the absence of any political leadership. If Peter Dutton or Angus Taylor or any of them stand up and make this argument, those numbers are only going to go up and up and up.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Great to talk to you, Daniel, every week. Daniel Wilde, there he is, fluent, informed and on the ball, the Deputy Executive Director at the Institute of Public Affairs. Well, look, whether you're a sports person or not, it is appropriate to note the extraordinary performance by a depleted Queensland Rugby League side coached by the mercurial Billy Slater and assisted by people like great, the, the greats like Cameron Smith and Jonathan Thurston. Queensland were rank outsiders, minus arguably the best player in the world, Cameron Munster, but every Queenslander zeroed in on every New South Wales ball carrier, forcing an error-strewn performance by New South Wales. There were many heroes, as Queensland sat New South Wales on their backsides. But I thought the 21-year-old from Toowoomba, Tom Dearden, thrown in to make his debut, replacing Cameron Munster was absolutely outstanding, as was the 24-year-old from Rockhampton, Harry Grant. I'll tell you what, they turn them up in Queensland and they deliver. Some soul-searching is going to have to be done in New South Wales. To Nick Kyrgios, I note the three-time Wimbledon champion John McEnroe saying that Kyrgios needs Sigmund Freud to sort out the demons in his game. Now McEnroe, who for tantrums on the court would most probably outdo Kyrgios, described Nick Kyrgios as a genius and identified the fact that in the Wimbledon final against one of the greatest players ever in Djokovic, Kyrgios delivered up 30 aces and 62 winners in total. Said McEnroe, it's unbelievable. He moves the needle for us in tennis. We need this big time, but we don't need him to try half the time. Interesting comments by McEnroe. When he Pardon me, when he said of Kyrgios, he's a good kid. The players like him. He's well liked in the locker room. He does a lot of charity work. But as McEnroe added, how do you think his box feels when he's screaming at them? They are the people that love him most. There you are, Nick Kirios. Now, a big rugby test on Saturday, the decider, Australia v England at one of the great sporting theatres of the world, the Sydney Cricket Ground. This will be a real test for a depleted Wallaby side, though to his credit, the coach, Dave Rennie, is offering no excuses. But there'll be plenty of Australians hoping to take the scalp of Eddie Jones and his England outfit. But there are genuine worries in the world of Australian rugby. In the Oceania Rugby Under-20 Championship, played on the Sunshine Coast, The junior Wallabies were thrashed by the All Blacks down 40-0 at halftime, full-time score 69-12 to the All Blacks. We were also beaten by Argentina. If that's a window into our rugby future, things are bleak. Now, on Sri Lanka, the political robbers and cowards who've raped the country have now taken off. The President, Rajapaksa, got all the treatment, bodyguards, military aircraft, he's now in the Maldives in an undisclosed location, but under police escort, left the country rather than face the music. And what are police doing supporting the robber? He so mismanaged Sri Lanka that the country's run out of foreign exchange to finance even the most essential imports, leading to terrible hardship for its 22 million lovely people. Said one retired 74-year-old civil servant, quote, people are happy because these people robbed our country They've stolen too much money, billions and billions. But the 74-year-old held out little hope for an immediate improvement saying, how are people going to run the country without money? As a measure of the hatred towards these Rajapaksas, this President got a buy a Rajapaksa, wanted to fly to Dubai, apparently, on a commercial flight. But staff at the Bandaranaika International Airport withdrew from VIP services and insisted that Rajapaksa go through the public counters. Well, of course, the cowards that they are, they didn't want to risk public reaction. So the military looked after them. And with all the trappings, they've now landed in the Maldives. The poor Sri Lankan people are left to pick up the pieces. Well, it's the end of the week, at least for the program. And this interview could produce anything, but I'm ready for it. Geoffrey Howard Archer, Baron Archer or otherwise Lord Archer, the author of books which have sold more than 320 million copies worldwide. Amongst other things, as a sprinter, Geoffrey Archer represented England and once competed for Great Britain. But he was also a member of the House of Commons for the Lincolnshire constituency of Louth between 1969 and 1974 and was a confidant of Margaret Thatcher. His 1979 novel, Cain and Abel, remains one of the best selling books in the world. I've known Geoffrey Archer for years. We're great friends. But with the political upheaval in Britain within the Conservative Party, and given that he was appointed Deputy Chairman of the Conservative Party by Margaret Thatcher in September 1985, his insights, I think, will be interesting. In a stirring speech to the Conservative Party conference in 1993, Geoffrey Archer urged the then Home Secretary, Michael Howard, to, quote, stand and deliver, saying... Michael, I'm sick and tired of being told by old people that they're frightened to open the door. They're frightened to go out at night, frightened to use the parks and byways where their parents and grandparents walked with freedom. We say to you, stand and deliver. He then then attacked violent films. I just make that point because we're talking tonight almost 30 years later and the problems persist. Lord Archer joins me. Jeffrey, thank you for your time. Uh, Before we get down to the serious stuff, it seems that the Colonials are still showing the way. You've got an Australian coaching your rugby side and now New Zealand are coaching a cricket side. What's the problem?
3: Uh, We are international, Alan. We are willing to accept (laughs) it's a possibility that just one or two people might come out of Australia and New Zealand, between them who are capable of advising us on these things. No. I think in the case of the, uh, I mean, Mr. Jones has been having a lot of trouble with the team. We're one all, as you know, and on Saturday we'll discover how much we beat you by, what the figure (laughs) is that we actually surmount. In the case of New Zealand, I think McCullum is one of the finest coaches in the world, number one. I also think, looking back, Alan, he was one of the finest captains and players
2: mm.
3: I remember in my mm. lifetime. There you are. He's a he's a, he's a first class man. First what did you think? Man. What did you think about Nick Kyrgios? I am old fashioned. I'm I'm even older than you. Alan. <laughs> I still think good manners. Yeah, no. are no, I'm not a yeah. bad thing. Yeah, not but on I the hallowed. Like yeah, on, on the Hallowed no, Centre I, Court. I prefer. I prefer that. Is, you're quite right. That is, that is the greatest place to play tennis yeah, on earth. Absolutely. Kindly treat it as such.
2: I agree. Well done. Let's get serious. You've got many fans here, so just a quick one on what is the latest on the writing front?
3: Well, the new book comes out in September, and what I hope will fascinate the, I, I've waited 25 years uh to write a book about Princess Diana. Uh having known her and worked with her. I've waited 25 years because I thought it was my responsibility not to reveal things, secrets and things that happened. Uh, so the new book Next in Line, which comes out in September, takes William Warwick to the next stage and he's in charge of royalty protection. Oh the, Ross Hogan, his number two is in charge of Princess
2: Diana. Amazing, you're amazing. Just tell quickly, my viewers, you still do this in longhand. How many drafts?
3: Still do, uh, every word is written in longhand, and this morning between six and eight, I was working on the 14th draft. I wish there was a shortcut, Alan, and I'm sure brighter, younger people than me know about shortcuts, but I'm afraid for me, I still have to put in the hard work, which is something, dare I say, you've never been frightened of.
2: (laughs) Thank you very much for saying that. I tell my viewers, Cain and Abel has sold more than 32 million copies. Not so long ago, I just make this point, Geoffrey and I went to Geoffrey's quote unquote favorite restaurant on the embankment in London. Very popular, he told me. So away we went. We were the only two people there and I couldn't understand a word on the menu and I couldn't find anything, anything that I might like. Please tell me you're not still going there. (laughs)
3: It's closed, Alan.
2: No doubt. No doubt. Listen, Boris Johnson, the bloke won the support of 14 million in an election three years ago, a majority of 80 seats.
3: Is what has happened to him the ultimate revenge by the Remainers? um, No, it is not. He isn't by nature a Prime Minister. Do you know the big difference between you and him? And you could have been Prime Minister of your country. The big difference between you and him is detail. He doesn't like red boxes. Mm. He doesn't like going into great detail. And he has, because of that wonderful brain of his, he'll say something mercurial and then regret it two weeks later because the opposition will pick up that sentence and throw it back at him. I think... Sorry about this. I think he he has many great gifts, but having worked with Margaret Thatcher for eleven years, I will tell you what she cared about most was detail, and if she said anything, she was always aware it was on the record. Mm.
2: I, I just have been telling my viewers that ninety-five percent of the Labour Party are Remainers, and seventy-five percent of the Parliament. Uh, If Boris is gonna stay until the next election in 2005, do British Prime Ministers come back?
3: Winston Churchill did. No, Uh, Winston Churchill did, you're correct. Those days have gone. So interestingly, interestingly our former Prime Prime Minister is sitting on the back benches, and I think she will come back. Boris, no. I think Boris will leave the House do, write a book, which will make millions, will do this the tall circuit. He will be the biggest draw in England. Everybody will want to go and hear what he really believes. Mm. No, he'll make a fortune, Alan. You just uh, said a very... No, sig- I think
2: you, you just said a very significant thing then. What did you mean that the former Prime
3: Minister, Theresa May, will come back? She will stand at the next election. She will never come back in office, but she will do that very unusual thing. She will return to the House of Commons and she will sit on the back benches. Mm. Mm. She is, it's her whole life, Alan. Mm. She has nothing else. Mm. So she will, Boris won't.
2: Right, now tonight, this morning our time or yesterday afternoon your time, uh, there was a vote, the first of the votes uh, by for the eight candidates, the parliamentary party, 358 of them, a massive 358 MPs cramming into a humid corridor at Parliament House on Wednesday afternoon to line up and cast their ballots. As I've already said earlier, Rishi Sunak on top and then Penny Mordaunt and then Liz Truss. Do you see any of the other three? They're very good candidates. Kemi Badenoch, Suella Braverman and Tom Tugadat. Do you see them finishing in the top two?
3: No. The top two will be uh, definitely Sunak and I think... Uh, I think, Penny Morden. Yes. I and couldn't... when it goes to the country, yes. when it is taken... You see, the first vote is in the House. They select the two they want. The two they want then go round the country and are voted for by the people, which I was responsible for. As you pointed out in a speech I made in uh, at the party conference, I said, let the people decide. And we now do decide. Everybody gets a vote. Now, I am told by people in the know, Alan, that when it comes to the two of them on the circuit, she is showing in the polls, hold your breath, 72% against 27%. So she will probably be... Britain's next Prime Minister.
2: Penny Mordant. Penny Mordant. Yes, I, I, I'm not Nostradamus, but I said about four weeks ago I thought that Sunak and Mordant would be the two. She's very well credentialed. Oh. She's very well credentialed. Just with the 1922 committee, is there a problem here that if you can get rid of a Prime Minister who's won a thumping majority, which future Conservative Prime Minister
3: is safe? No future Conservative Prime Minister is safe. We live in a new world, Alan. The days when you selected someone like Margaret, who did 11 years, have gone. If they get cross with you, you've got TikTok, you've got social media, you've got Alan Jones. They can grumble away and do things, (laughs) and you can remove a prime minister far more quickly than you could in the past. So the days of Winston Churchill continuing on and coming back are behind us. No, the new world is very rough indeed. Mm. Our viewers will be really interested because you were very close
2: to Margaret Thatcher. Comparing her now, we've had time to look at her compared to other leaders of the Western world.
3: Where do you place her? Oh, she's up there as number one. I am prejudiced. I had the privilege of working with her for 11 years. And as you know, because you met her in my home, Mm. we became close friends afterwards. Uh, a right to her to her death. But no, that's a once-in-a-lifetime, Alan. I mean I saw your very great interview with her, and you will have a strong personal view yourself. Yes. They don't come that often, Alan. No, they don't. They don't. Just
2: before you go, a final one, the Queen. People here very Where am interested in. Big Ben? People here very interested in the health of the Queen and There's a lot of interest in the future of the monarchy and so on. Um, Where do you see that?
3: Well, I think Her Majesty is a lot fitter than people realise. She was out riding yesterday. (laughs) So I think there's been a lot of speculation about her death, which is, I would say, to quote Mark Twain, premature. (laughs) No, she looked... I saw her on television. She looked fantastic. Uh, And, as you know, she's much admired in our country. Oh, yes. I understand the Australian position. I'm bound to say, obviously, I don't have a right to give an opinion on what the Australian people feel about the future of the monarchy. I know that Her Majesty would be absolutely broken-hearted if Australia went their own way and became a Mm -hmm. republic. But I, I am bound to say... I understand that they might, and I understand why they would. Uh, We must remember that Britain has had a great history, played a part in the history of the world, but those days are behind us. We're now a country that's fighting for survival like everyone else, and the world will move on, Mm. and people younger than us, Alan, and you're an old fogey, and I'm an old (laughs) <laughs> Times move on, and we have to learn to live with them. You, your grumpy old thing, have found it very hard to live with them.
2: <laughs> well, Geoffrey, it's wonderful to talk to you, and we're going to talk to you again at the time of the book coming out, because you've got a wonderful fan club here, and I hope I'll get to see you before then, but Time being what it is, it's yes, in, it's it's very it's very much in short supply. But that's a very interesting insight by Geoffrey Archer, Lord Archer, who has said he believes that the two candidates which will go who will go to the membership are Ronnie Sunak and Penny Mordant, and that in the electorate about 200,000 Conservative members will have a vote. And Geoffrey made the point that about 70% of them plus are in favour of this 49-year-old. Penny Mordaunt, the first ever female defence Brit- uh, minister in Britain, and she's a Royal Naval reservist and honorary commander. So a most impressive woman, and Geoffrey Archer thinks she will be the next British Prime Minister. Look, without pumping up our tyres here, I, think my, I thank my viewers for writing to tell me that we are the last bastion of common sense. Nowhere is this more brought out than in the energy crisis, which lacks any kind of responsible debate. Your reaction to the interview with Professor Plymer this week confirms what we know and what do we know? Well, two things. One, any number of polls tell us that the climate change issue does not rank with the Australian people. I was looking last night at a Lowy Institute poll of, quote, the important issues facing Australia, unquote. Climate change was a distant sixth behind education, health, domestic violence and the economy, amongst others. Yet here we have the Deputy Prime Minister Richard Miles in Washington, not talking about foot and mouth disease, but arguing that climate change is a greater threat to the Pacific than Chinese military aggression. Richard Miles is not entitled to believe that he speaks for the bulk of Australians. As I said last night, and I'll keep saying, 67.2% of those who voted on May 21 did not vote for the Labor Party. Yet here he is in Washington, the Deputy Prime Minister representing us with this alarmist talk at the Washington-based Centre for Strategic and International Studies think tank, telling them that US and Australia need to lift their game in the Pacific or risk, quote, catastrophic failure. And that, quote, climate change is absolutely the biggest issue which faces the peoples of the Pacific. It's an existential issue and it's felt viscerally within the Pacific, unquote. Where is the evidence for that talk? But the same Labor Party, Labor Government, wants us to believe that they have it right when they say they going to legislate for 43% reduction in carbon dioxide emissions. And this week the Prime Minister said that renewables will be 82% of the national energy market by 2030 and that all of this will rec- create magically 604,000 jobs. Now look, I don't mind what epithet you use, but as the home of common sense, I am saying this talk is rubbish. Nonsense, balderdash, or to use the language of the young ones at the tuck shop, crap. This week in Sydney, there was a Sydney Energy Forum. Speaking at it was the United States Energy Secretary, Jennifer Granholm. She has the job in the Biden administration of taking America to this net zero carbon dioxide emissions. She admitted at the conference that, quote, the ground has shifted, unquote. And like most of these so called leaders, blamed Russia, arguing that Russia has, quote, driven climate ambitious Europe back to its coal mines," unquote. But you see, the Biden administration has boasted about trillion dollar, trillion climate plans, any amount of money to be printed to get so-called clean energy because apparently carbon dioxide is destroying the planet. And this Granholm and our energy minister of the same ilk, Chris Bowen, signed an agreement to cooperate on the acceleration of clean tech development. Well, I'm telling you both, you can sign pieces of paper all day and it won't get you to net zero. At that same forum this week, the Chinese government didn't accept the invitation. But most speakers in the room were whinging about supply chains. In other words, they've woken up that if you want solar panels and wind turbines, not only does China have a world monopoly on producing them, but also China leads the world in the production of rare earth concentrates used in the production of solar panels, turbines, electric vehicles and batteries. In other words, China dominates the world in the processing of minerals needed in a low carbon world, if that's what you're going to achieve. So now everyone's getting nervous as to how you wean countries off the Chinese supply chain. In other words, we're mouthing all this talk about zero emissions and we don't have the capacity to deliver. That's why the executive director of the International Energy Agency, this Dr. Fatai Birol, said also at that forum that the global energy crisis has not reached its peak and is likely to worsen. He said, quote, the world has never witnessed such a major energy crisis in terms of its depth and its complexity. He said, I believe we might not have seen the worst of it yet, unquote. We have an energy supply crunch. We want to turn our backs on coal-fired power. Even if renewables were viable, which they're not, and you've heard the cliche about the sun not shining and the wind not blowing, but we don't have the transmission infrastructure to get the stuff onto the grid. And meanwhile, electricity and gas prices here are going through the roof, and we continue to ignore the thousands of years of coal underneath our feet. The public understand this. That's what Daniel Wilde was just talking about. Asking Australians, should we build new coal-fired power stations to ensure families have reliable and affordable electricity all year round? And only 23% of those polled across Australia disagreed. Which brings me back to the utterances of our Prime Minister. Quote, we will legislate for 43% reduction in emissions and we'll have 82% of renewables in the energy market by 2030. I'm sorry, there is no hope of getting there. And the polls suggest the public are not in step with the government's utterances about energy, which are delivered with a sort of biblical certainty. Soon the Albanese government is going to have to accept that on May 21, 67.2% of voters didn't want them. And that means the government runs the risk of imploding on energy policy that might be endorsed by the Teals, but it doesn't answer the concerns of mainstream Australians. Well, just before we go, everyone I speak to asks me what I think about the economy and where it's all heading. The public are concerned. It is a forlorn thing to say, but I don't think the current crop of politicians understands the economic turbulence ahead. They fail to grasp simple economics and are addicted to spending money. Government expenditures are out of control right across the country and has been for 15 years. Past treasurers have failed to rein in the spending. Scott Morrison and Josh Frydenberg both were treasurers throughout fiscal conservatism and structural reform, replacing it with their tax and spend agenda and boosting social welfare. The economic record, I'm sorry, of the coalition in the past few years has been diabolical. Tens of billions of dollars wasted on jobkeeper rorts. Economic managers more like economic vandals. And where were Morrison and friedberg in relation to this Reserve Bank Governor, Philip Lowe? Did both of them seriously not question the direction of Australia's monetary policy amidst their inflationary spending? A huge dereliction of duty. Now look at the mess we're in. Inflation is a real concern. Groceries and petrol prices keep climbing. There's no end in sight as to when the Reserve Bank will stop increasing interest rates. Currently, a fixed mortgage rate is about 7%. Should the public expect a 10% interest rate by the end of the year? Remember, at the end of last year, the leading rate was 1.84%. In real terms, these are huge extra payments for people. Overnight, it was announced that inflation in America reached 9.1% in June, a 41-year high. And Australia typically trails America about six months. That's why I can't fathom how half the government front bench is overseas. Anthony Albanese, come home now. Stop hugging this Solomon's leader, Sogavare. It was only months ago, Labor up in arms rightly about the security pact the Solomons inked with China. Now our Prime Minister is hugging the bloke. The Deputy Prime Minister, Richard Miles in America, where's Jim Chalmers? Does he have a voice? Australians need answers on the economy and cost of living now. They want to know what the government's plans are. We don't need stupid lectures from Chris Bowen about renewables and legislating emissions reduction targets. That's putting pressure on the cost of living. I don't know how people are surviving at the moment and then they turn on the television at night or open a paper and see their government ministers abroad in Madrid and Singapore and Fiji, America, Sri Lanka, Indonesia. It is the ultimate slap in the face. Well, no slap in the face for me. That's it for me tonight. Thank you for being with us. Everything we have done is on the app this week, last week or the website adh.tv. Hope you enjoy it. Thank you for your company. See you next week. Good night.